Well, if, if you guys are anything like me, you probably have a handful of movies that you can watch a hundred times over and never get tired of watching. Is there something in your mind right now? The movies that whenever they come across the screen or maybe you uh, kind of stumble up on it on Netflix and you think, oh, I just need 10 minutes of that movie. That's exactly what I need. Or I've already seen 90 minutes have passed, but it's okay. I'll, as long as I catch the last 20 minutes, I will be good to go. My list is pretty long of movies that fit that bill. But in honor of football season maybe coming back or maybe not coming back, I want to give you the one that's on the top of my mind today. It's an incredible movie called Remember the Titans. I love this movie. It is an incredible movie. If you have not seen it, shame on you. Um, You know, please go find this movie before you show your face in public again, okay? Uh, Just kidding, but it is an incredible movie. It's a very quotable movie. It has some awesome scenes in there, and in case you have not seen the movie, the premise is based on the true story of T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia, and what happens is it's this story of Coach Boone, who's played by Denzel Washington, and he is given this task of bringing together integrating two schools under one umbrella of T.C. Williams High School. And so the storyline has, you know, kind of a, a portion of the, of the movie is devoted to just the, 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 the racial tension and the anger and the hurt and the frustration and all the things that are coming together as these schools are integrated. But there's a scene that sticks out to me. And in fact, it sticks out to me more than any scene in the entire movie. And it's where Coach Boone is continually trying to drive home the point of working together and being a unified team and being, uh, you know, together, better together, there for one another. And so he's taking the team through these very treacherous two-day, three-day three-a-day practices. And at the end of one of these scenes, you have the two respective captains from the teams who have come together, Gary Bertier and Julius Campbell. And they have this interaction where Gary Bertier looks at Julius Campbell and he says, you are not looking out for the team. And Julius Campbell looks back at Gary Bertier and says, well, your teammates, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says, your teammates, your white teammates are not blocking for any of the black players on the team. So, Captain, I'm just going to keep looking out for myself. And Gary Bertier looks at Julius Campbell and says, well, that's a terrible attitude to have. And Julius Campbell looks back at Gary Bertier and says, well, attitude reflects leadership, Captain. And I love this scene. And isn't that moment when you just kind of have to pause and you just have to sit there for a moment and think, my goodness, what an amazing nugget of truth. When Julius Campbell looks at Gary Bertier and says, my attitude reflects the leadership that you are providing to us as the captain. I've always loved this line because what Julius Campbell is saying is my attitude is reflective of what I am seeing lived out in you. And I'm following your lead. My attitude is based on what I am observing in front of me day in and day out. And I know it's a movie. But there is some rich truth in that statement. In fact, as we set our sights today on what it means to move forward with the right attitude and the right actions, I believe that our attitude will directly be influenced by the leadership that we are under. I'll take it one step further. I believe that attitude is a byproduct of lordship. What do I mean by that? Your attitude is going to directly be related to whatever or whoever is lord over your life. And your attitude this morning is going to be reflective of Who's calling the shots? Who is really in control of my life? Because I believe that our attitude will most 
likely follow suit of wherever we have chosen to place our time and our attention. So I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer today as we open our eyes to God's Word, as we open our eyes to what it means to move forward with a Christ-like attitude and ask you, God, to do what only you can do in this place today. Will you join me in praying? Lord, thank you for this beautiful morning of life. Thank you for an opportunity to come together as the body of Christ. I thank you for every person who's here, whether they're a first-time guest or whether they've been with us for a number of years. I am so thankful for each and every person sitting in these chairs today. And I pray that in our time together today, you would encourage us, that you would remind us of your goodness and your faithfulness, and that you would help us to adopt a Christ-like attitude and allow you and invite you to be Lord over our life and trust that that will make all the difference. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask all these things, amen and amen. Now, our passage of Scripture today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible there, you're going to see some of these words up on the screen. But we've been in the book of Philippians for the past couple of weeks, and I want to give you a little overview of the book of Philippians. Maybe uh, this is a new book to you, or maybe you just need a refresher of what the book of Philippians is really all about. But Philippians is a letter. It is a correspondence, if you will, from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi, and it was written by Paul when he was in prison. And there's a big kind of idea of Philippians that centers around this concept of joy. In fact, some, uh, some reference to joy is made 19 times in these four chapters of the book of Philippians. There's also an underlying theme in the book of Philippians in this letter where Paul is trying to get the church to live with unification, to live in one mind, in one spirit, to not be divided. And there's a number of divisions that are happening in the church at Philippi. But he's also saying, I want you to follow in the humility of Christ. I want you to put one another above yourself. I want you to not serve with vain conceit or arrogance, but I want you to look to the needs of others as more important than yourself. And in essence, what Paul is saying is, I want you to take the lead from Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ was the the, the one who sacrificed so that we could have life. He is the Savior. He is the one that in him, your life can be made whole. And he spared nothing, not in, even in his own life. He was willing to give his own life. And that's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that we should seek to make our attitude the same as that of Christ Jesus. And you may remember this from last week, but right at the end of chapter 2 of the section, verses 9 through 11, he reminds the Philippian church about the sacrifice that Jesus had made. Look at verse 11. Let me read it to you. He says, One day every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does that mean? It means that every person, past, present, and future, will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this is so crucial for our understanding of the verses that are to come. In preparation for this week, I stumbled upon a tweet from Priscilla Shire from 2019. And Priscilla Shire is an incredible teacher of God's Word. And this was what her tweet said, and I quote, Every knee will bow. You can do it now, voluntarily, or you can do it later, mandatorily. But make no mistake, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. And what Priscilla Shire is saying is a perfect representation of what Paul is saying. He is saying there will be a day... You either voluntarily do it now and live in the peace and the, and the comfort of a relationship with Jesus Christ, or you will do that mandatorily later. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that's the backdrop of where we pick up in verse 12. So look at verse 12. Therefore, my dear brothers, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm going to stop there for a second, because what is the first word of verse 12? 
therefore. I said this to you last week, but every time you see the word therefore in Scripture, you should always ask yourself a question. What is it therefore? Therefore begs the question, what is it therefore? Because the phrase therefore is a connecting phrase. It's connecting back up to verse 11. Verse 11, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, or as a result of that, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my absence, but now much more, or not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Continuing on to verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is saying, you obeyed when I was with you, but I want you to please continue to be obedient now that I am no longer with you. And I want you to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. And some of you are reading this passage of scripture, and at first glance, maybe this idea seems a little bit contradictory to what you know about Jesus or what you know about salvation, because there's this phrase, work out your own salvation, and it kind of is looking at us glaring in the face. And some of us are familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, which says, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So in the book of Ephesians, Paul is saying that it's a free gift of God. It's not by works so that anyone can boast. But here in the book of Philippians, he's saying, work out your own salvation. And you may look at that and think, are these contradictory? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is he giving us two different paths to salvation? And the answer to that is glaringly no. These aren't contradictory texts. You'll see this there in your notes if you have a worship guide or if you have the app or you're going to see it up here on the screen as well. But I'd like to give you some, some phrases and some notes that you can take with you this week. And the first one is that working out your salvation and working for your salvation are two very different things. Let me repeat that for you. Working out your salvation and working for your salvation are two very different things. See, working out your salvation means that you are carrying yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. You're continually allowing Jesus to set your agenda. You're allowing Jesus and inviting Jesus to be your true north in every decision that you make. You're seeking to be pure and blameless. It's what Paul calls in chapter 1, verse 27, conducting yourself worthy in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying this is worked out moment by moment. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since we have now been justified, remember that word, by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? See, that phrase justification means that you and I are made right. And that means at the moment of conversion, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you and I are made right. That happens at the moment that we profess and confess that Jesus is Lord and accept him as our Savior. Because you have been justified, then how much more will you be saved from God's wrath? So it's this moment of conversion, but because of that, we are now saved from God's wrath, which is something in the future. We're saved from that moment of experiencing eternal separation from Jesus. So see, you don't work for salvation, but you do 
work it out day by day because back to the first century, back to this first century context, what's going on here in Philippi? There's a sense of division. There's a need for unity. There's a need for the church to really and literally be the church. So it all of a sudden makes more sense because Paul says, I want you to live this out. Why? Because that demonstrates to those that don't know Jesus that you are a true Christ follower. It demonstrates to the hurting world and to the lost world that you really belong to Jesus. I think about my marriage, and I think about the most significant day in, in our life, mine, mine and Jacqueline's life. I think about the most significant day, and the most significant day in our life was December 3rd. Because see, December 3rd is our anniversary. That's the day that we were married. That was the day that we stood before God and witnesses and we recited vows, and we exchanged these wedding rings, and we became husband and wife, and it was an awesome day. I loved everything about that day, from the dancing to the, to the uh, event itself, to the food. We had shrimp and grits at our wedding, and it was just incredible. I still think about it sometimes. Of, I wish I could get the shrimp and grits that we had at our wedding, and friends and family, some of you in the room were there, and it was the most important day, and it was literally the best day ever. But I'm going to be the first to tell you that just because you had a great wedding day does not mean that you have a great marriage. Just because the event was awesome doesn't mean that the marriage is awesome. Now, these are inextricably linked because, see, that day changed everything. But just because I'm married doesn't mean that you should emulate my marriage, just because I made a commitment to Jacqueline doesn't mean that we are keeping that commitment just because of the wedding day itself. See, as we work out our marriage with the realization that there's going to be good days and bad days, it doesn't diminish the fact of how important that day was. And I hope and pray that our marriage is a beacon of light to others. But see, there was a day, and then there was almost the last 10 years. You're going to get a clearer picture of whether a marriage is God-honoring, not by looking at the day, but looking at all the moments over the last 10 years, or looking at all the moments over the last 20 years, or looking at all those moments over the last 30 years. See, what Paul is saying is you were justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That was the moment. Now I want you to live out these principles because living these out day by day by day, that's what communicates to the world who you're really in a relationship with. And he's saying this is so important here in the first century, so church, I want you to get it. And see, this was God's working. This wasn't our working. God is the one that had this plan. Salvation is not something that we initiated. It's not something that we could work for, but yet we get the privilege of working that out. God saved you. It was his plan. It was his purpose. And friends, I love every person in this room, but you are not good enough to save yourself. Your plans will always fall short. Your plans will always take a, a, a second place award to God's plans because God's plans are so good. In fact, you see it there on your notes, but a man's plans do not always fulfill God's purpose. A man's plan does not always fulfill God's purpose. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So see, salvation comes entirely from Jesus. So these aren't contradictory texts at all. It's offered to us by God. God is the one who initiates it. And you and I get the privilege of working that out day by day so that we can be a beacon of light to others. I see people all the time trying to fulfill God's purposes 
with man-made plans. And some of you have tried to do that yourself. Let me know how that worked out for you. When you're trying to fulfill a purpose that only God can do, and you try to do it in your own power, God's purposes can only be fulfilled with God's plans. Have you noticed in life sometimes we try to substitute? We try to substitute kind of our plan, or we try to make a substitute for something that we know that really the real thing is what we need, but we try a substitute. Some of you buy generic products, and you realize, I shouldn't be wasting my money on these generic products. They're just not as good as the real thing, because there's a real thing, and there's a substitute. See, there's God's plan, and sometimes there are these things that we substitute. At our house, we uh, tackle and share responsibilities and projects all the time. You know, I I would encourage you guys to do this. If you're uh, in a relationship, don't just say, hey, that's your job and that's my job. You know, work on these things together. And so Jacqueline and I are a team. By the way, I I ran none of this by her today, so she's hearing all of this for the very first time as well. Uh, So stop me if I'm wrong up here. But I would say for the largest majority of the time, we are, we're, we're, we're working out all the tasks together and all those kinds of things. And, but there's certain things that you just kind of learn over time that just I kind of gravitate away from that or you kind of gravitate towards that. In our home, I would say about a 95% of the grocery shopping is done by my wife. It's not because I don't know how to or that, I don't, that, I, that I'm afraid of it or anything like that. It's just kind of something that we have kind of figured out. Let's, she just does most of that. So I would say 95% of the time that happens, unless we want steak, which is much more frequently than we actually have it. But unless we want steak, I've just kind of learned over time that it's something about a red meat aisle that just shuts my wife down. And so uh, very early on in our marriage one time, I said, we should have steak. And so she went to the grocery store and she came home with round steak, which is like $4 a pound. And some of you guys are looking at me like I have three heads. You're like, what's the big deal? See, round steak needs to go in a crock pot, not on a grill. Round steak needs to be low and slow for a lot of time. And so it's $4. She said, what was the cheapest steak that they had? And I said, well, I know we're trying to save money, but see, you need to be up in the $15 to $20 pound range. So you just look at the prices, and that's what we need to buy because, see, we needed New York strip. That's what I wanted to throw on the grill. It's not $4 a pound. It's like $16.99 a pound, but oh my goodness. When you're wanting New York strip, you throw a round steak on the grill, you'll be going to, going to McDonald's later because you're like, this is just a poor substitute for what I am looking for. See, God is saying to us, maybe you catch my drift, God is saying, you can come up with personal plans, but those plans will not fulfill your purpose for me. I have a plan. I have a purpose. So I want you to lean into that and experience my goodness and my salvation and seek to have my attitude. Jesus says, my attitude of humility to where you'll humble yourself and be a light for others. Look at verse 14. So then as a result of that, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul says, I want you to do everything without grumbling or complaining. Some of you know people that this needs to be their memory verse. Just go ahead and send it to them this week. Send them a text, Philippians 2, 14 through 16, and then put dot, 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 thus saith the Lord. Just say, this is just God's word. These aren't my words. This is just God's word. 
I I like to share with you Greek words every so often. And the Greek definition here for the word everything is the word pause. And you know this occurs like 1,250 times in the New Testament. So it's a pretty frequent word. I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. Do you know what the Greek word for everything means? Everything. This is a real simple one. It means all. There's not a lot of nuance here. It means all. It means everything. What is Paul saying? We are to do everything without complaining or arguing. Why? So that we can be right all the time? No, we are to do everything without complaining or arguing so that we will be pure and blameless. We will be children of God in a crooked and warped generation. Now, this is so cool because what Paul is doing here is he's throwing it back to the Old Testament. Some of your Bibles have a cross-reference, and it says Deuteronomy 32, 5. And this is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, because Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the Old Testament law probably better than anyone. He could quote books like Deuteronomy from memory. And what does it say in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5? They are corrupt and not his children, And to their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Well, what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy? This is what's called Moses' song, and it's in reference to the Israelites. If you want a visual picture of this, go check out the Ten Commandments, the movie The Ten Commandments. That's what this kind of, that, you know, four-and-a-half-hour movie is about, the exodus of the Israelites from slavery to the promised land. But Moses is referring to the Israelites here in, in a kind of a shameful way, and he's referring to them as a warped and a crooked generation, Now, this might be new information for some of you guys, but God's chosen people, the Israelites, they were rescued from slavery in Egypt, and it was what was called the Exodus. But yet the Israelites, they struggled to trust God in the midst of everything. Even though they were out of slavery, they mourned what it was like in Egypt. They had been set free, but they still missed the comforts of Egypt because now that they're free, you know what they were missing from Egypt? This is what the Bible says, cucumbers. Y'all look it up, Google it. What did they miss? They were missing the comforts like cucumbers and melons and fish and garlic. They're out here in the wilderness and they have no food and say, Moses, we need food. He prays to God and what does God provide for them? Manna. We need something to drink. What does God bring out of a rock? Water. And then they get tired of manna and so they ask for something else. And what does God bring them? quail. So God was providing all of their needs, and they're eating the quail, and they're saying, this quail's really, really good, but we sure do miss the cucumbers. We miss the spices that we had back in Egypt. And as a result of that, Moses refers to them as a warped and crooked generation. Why? Because they weren't content. They were prone to argue. They were prone to complain. They were referred to as corrupt, back to verse 14, what does Paul say? Or back to verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. So he says, if you do everything without arguing and everything without complaining, then you will be pure and blameless. You will be pure and blameless in a generation that is warped and that is crooked You will be a light to others. You will be someone that others can and will see the light of Christ working through. So adopting the attitude of Christ is huge. And it sets you apart. And it allows God to use you in a really significant and a really profound way. You see this in your notes. But bad attitudes are big barriers. Bad attitudes are big 
barriers. See, a bad attitude doesn't just drag other people down. A bad attitude doesn't just drag you down. But a bad attitude puts a big old blanket over your light. The constant complaining, the constant negativity, the constant arguing, the inability to find peace and oneness in Jesus Christ, it's not only eroding you, but it's eroding your relationships. And what Paul says is that's a barrier that's going to prevent you from being used. This is one of those incredible truths that we, we, we know is, is profound, but yet we see it affirmed in the Word of God, that there is something about having a bad attitude that is going to be a barrier from experiencing what it is that Jesus has for us. That's why Paul says, I want you to adopt the mindset and the attitude of Jesus Christ. I said at the top of the message, but I believe it with all of my heart, that attitude is a byproduct of lordship that your attitude is going to be most directly linked to whatever or whoever is Lord over your life. If, you're, if the lordship of your life is under Jesus' control, then your life should look like Philippians 2, and that you should go above and beyond of try to serving other people and meeting other people's needs, and not serving with vain conceit, and not being more about yourself than you are about others, and allowing Jesus to set your agenda. That's a byproduct of a relationship with Jesus Christ. But there's many other things that can be Lord over your life as well. If money is Lord over your life, then that will be the filter that you look at everything through, and it will prevent you from experiencing what true peace really looks like. Maybe social media is the Lord over your life right now. And if social media is over the Lord of your life, is the Lord of your life right now, then you're setting yourself up for a comparison trap. Your whole life is going to be me comparing myself to you. Because what is social media? I've said this before. Social media is my highlight reel. I post the best of the best about my life. And what do you post? The best of the best. I know some of you in the room. I, I, I recognize a lot of faces here. You guys are great. You're not that great. I'm awesome. Not that awesome. What social media does, if it's the Lord of my life, then it sets a comparison trap. What about the news? What about if the 24-7 news cycle is Lord of your life right now? You're going to be in a constant state of negativity and cynicism. It's how news outlets make money. And I don't care which one you're talking about. They all pander to the lowest common denominator of human, of human development, which is fear. And if that's the Lord of my life, then... I'm going to be in a constant state of negativity, and I'm, and I'm probably going to be much more cynical than Jesus would ever desire for me to be. So if I don't like my attitude this morning, then maybe I need to evaluate who's Lord over my life. If you don't like your attitude, then I would ask you to ask yourself the question, well, who is Lord over my life then? Paul continues in verse 16, as you hold firmly to the words of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. See, Paul was able to have a good attitude. He was able to stay joyful in the midst of really adverse circumstances. He was in jail. And he said, I desire not to run or work in vain. I wanted my life to count is what Paul is saying. And so verse 17 is this incredible verse. And verse 17 is one that kind of rattled my cage as I've been preparing for this message over the last little bit. I keep coming back to verse 17 because what does he say? In verse 17, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. What does that mean? Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering. See, what Paul is saying is when I see your faith 
And when I see the sacrifices that you're making, church at Philippi, how you're living for Jesus, I would be okay if I was poured out on your behalf. That still sounds kind of sweet, though, doesn't it? I'm willing to give of myself to you. See, it's more than just giving of my time and my energy. What this literally means is that Paul says, I would be okay if I was poured out to the point of death for you because I am all in because my attitude is that of Christ Jesus. And to what extent did Jesus live and die for you? Everything. He gave everything so that you could have life. It's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20 that I've been crucified with Christ and what I no longer live. So it's really not about me anymore. I don't live anymore. He was following the example of Jesus. In essence, what Paul is saying here is whether I live or whether I die, Christ will be glorified. And you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna rejoice in that. I will rejoice in whether I live or whether I die. Now, when I look at Paul's life and when I look at Paul's attitude and when I compare that to myself, I realize I've got some areas to improve. Maybe you read this and you, and you say, oh, maybe, you know what, I have some areas to improve. Maybe there's something about my attitude that needs to change because when I look at how Paul lived his life and what he is putting here in front of these first century Christ followers, I realize that this really isn't a comfortable calling. This attitude of Jesus Christ, to adopt an attitude of Jesus Christ is going to cause some discomfort in my life. In fact, this is not going to be a safe, quote-unquote, safe decision. When you look at what Jesus did with the disciples, the last word I would ever use to describe what the commission that Jesus was giving his disciples was one of safety or was one of comfort. He said, no, you've got to follow my attitude, and by doing so, it means that you're going to go through some difficult seasons, and you're going to go through some challenges, and you're going to go through some moments where your faith is going to be tested Yet for some of us, we allow those very things to be the reason that we stay put and don't follow through with what God is asking us to do. Maybe it's money, or maybe it's security, or for some of us, it's safety. And safety is absolutely necessary. I do not want you to leave my sermon today and say, you know what the pastor said? We should take all of the security systems out of our house and we should just go completely cavalier and not do anything safe anymore. That's not at all what I'm saying. Safety is absolutely necessary. It is crucial. But have you noticed in your life that sometimes the most necessary things with the wrong perspective can actually do more harm than good? I'm concerned that often as a group of people, I'm concerned sometimes as a Christ follower and as a pastor that maybe we have not followed suit so much with what Paul and Jesus was showing us, but maybe we've allowed our agenda to, to kind of creep in. You see this there on your notes, but safety has become a very respectable idol for us. Safety has become a very respectable idol for us. What do I mean by respectable idol? See, we know that idols are bad, right? Nobody in here would say, idols are good. No, idols are bad. But is it possible that we value safety so much that we feel better about running everything through a safety filter, and then if the risk is not too high, then I'll be obedient? I'm going to run everything through this filter, and if it's not too risky or if it's not too uncomfortable, then I will say, yes, maybe God has affirmed something in you, or maybe through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has made something known to you. 
Or maybe he's given you a calling through your time of prayer or there's a nudging that you're receiving or something that you've heard at church or a conversation you've had with someone else and maybe you're here this morning and you're just allowing something to stand in the way of doing that thing. Whatever it is that's standing in the way, by definition, is an idol. I want you to imagine for a second that this is me. And I'm just over here. This is, this is just me. This is Jason. And that microphone stand represents what God wants to do in me. This is me, and this is who God wants me to be. And I know that there's a path to get there. It's only through Jesus Christ that I can get there. And so I start walking the path, and what do I hit? A table. Boom. I keep running into the table. And so one of two things is going to have to happen. I'm either going to have to go around this table, under this table, over this table, or put a stick of dynamite on this table and just blow it out of the water, right? I think there's so many things that stand in between where we are and where God wants us to be. For some of us, this is money. And we run everything through a filter of money and we say, you know what, if it, if it doesn't really affect my finances that much, then I'll be faithful. It's never what Jesus promised us. Some of us run things through the safety filter and we say, you know what, it seems a little bit risky, so I'm just gonna stay back over here. And as a result of that, anything, anything that stands in the way between where you are and what God wants you to be, then in essence, what you're saying is this is more valuable than this. Maybe there's something in your life this morning as we conclude. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's an action. Maybe it's just a next step that God is asking you to take. There's something maybe here this morning that God is wanting to give you traction in. Because maybe the, the concept that we have of what it really means to move forward with Christ, maybe it's just a little too safe this morning. Maybe it's just a little too comfortable. Because what did Paul say? He said, I am willing to be poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. And I am glad and I rejoice with all of you, no matter what may happen. See, God's calling each of us to move forward with the attitude of Jesus. He's inviting us to say, Jesus, please take lordship over my life. And as a result of that, move away all the idols. Move away all the distractions. Help me to get out of the way, Jesus, so that you can come and that you can come and inhabit this vessel and do whatever you want to do. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna close the service today. And I simply wanna ask you a question. What is that area of your life what is that area of your life that you need to give more control of Jesus to? What part of your faith story needs to be activated? What part of your journey um, have you not surrendered that attitude to Jesus Christ? And maybe this morning, uh, maybe for the first time, you would say, Lord, I just give you control of my life. I don't want safety or security or resources or finances to be an idol. I certainly don't want to be somebody who is a complainer or an arguer. I don't wanna be the person who tries to figure out your plans with my plans. But Lord, I wanna make my attitude of Christ Jesus. So find us faithful today, Lord. If there's anything of our life that's not surrendered to you, I pray that this morning we would give that to you and that you would meet us here in this place, that you would transform our lives. We give you free reign, Lord, to do what only you can do. 
in our lives today. It's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.